Good morning, and welcome back to the White Coat Underground. We have been on hiatus, secondary to technical difficulties. But thanks to the good folks at Hewlett Packard, I now have a refurbished laptop that has replaced my old damaged unit. Um, uh, computer, that is. Just to remind you, uh, my name is Peter Lipson. I go by PalMD on my blog, which is at scienceblogs.com slash whitecoatunderground. White Coat Underground is a just terrific blog that looks at the intersections of science, medicine, and culture. You will never regret reading it. On this podcast, I try to give you glimpses into the life of an internist and to what it's like to be a doctor and what it's like to be a patient. And, uh, you know, the topics sort of wander from place to place chaotically, which is pretty consistent with uh, the way I think. And consistent with that general idea, I did make a plan today to keep myself on task. However, that plan is going right in the trash bin. I was going to tell you a little bit about some of the specific problems that primary care physicians and their patients encounter, and I still might get to that. But I've run into an interesting question over on my blog as any of my readers know I do touch on the vaccine manufacturerversy from time to time. And anytime you write about vaccines, you're going to run into some pretty interesting questions, some of which are genuine and uh, searching, and some of which are simply idiotic, and some of which are downright hostile and nearly violent. I have been known to refer to the anti vaccine movement as a cult. Uh, and I sometimes refer to them as the infectious disease promotion movement because that's in fact what they are. I've often called them a cult because, well, they're a cult. They have charismatic leaders. They take everything their leaders say on faith. Their beliefs are completely impenetrable by any sort of logical argument or evidence. That being said, there are many people out there who feel genuinely confused about the information out there and about the controversy and are sitting on the fence waiting to be convinced one way or the other. And it is to those people that I direct much of my writing. That and I preach to the choir because it's kind of fun. Now, there's been a couple of big news events in the last couple of weeks, which I haven't been able to palcast about, uh, that deal with the anti-vaccine movement. First, the godfather of the anti-vaccine movement, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, was found to likely have been committing fraud, or at least to have been fraudulently altering data when he put together his now infamous study published in The Lancet about 10 years ago, in which he posited that the MMR vaccine could make people susceptible to autism. His reasoning at the time was rather convoluted. Uh, His argument was basically that the MMR vaccine caused a Crohn's-like colitis, and that subsequent vaccines that contained thimerosal preservatives uh, would deliver that thimerosal to the gut somehow, and that somehow these toxins would leach into the blood and cause neurologic damage that looked like autism. Uh, Honestly, it's all rather convoluted, and it's been proved wrong a hundred million times now. Or if you take into account the number of vaccines that have been given, probably billions of times it's been proved wrong. But now it's found that that study itself was based on fraudulent data. The second piece of news was the uh, findings of the special masters in the autism omnibus trial in the States. 
what this did was take some of the most favorable looking cases against vaccines and uh, looked to see if they had any merit. They examined various theories uh, as to whether and how vaccines might lead to autism. Each of the three test cases found resoundingly that vaccines don't lead to autism and that the professionals who promoted the idea were a bunch of kooks. And the ones who weren't kooks were misleading and perhaps evil, although they didn't use the word evil. Apparently, that's not something that you're supposed to do when you're a judge. So anyway, vaccines have been much in the news again lately. Also, it's uh, really the beginning of influenza season. The true beginning is in the fall, but uh, here in my part of the country, at least, we've seen a big spike in influenza-like illnesses in the last couple of weeks. So because of this increase in interest in vaccines lately, I'd like to tell you just a little teeny bit about the history of vaccines and about how vaccines work and about why these ideas that vaccines actually damage people is a whole lot of hooey. Vaccines are a type of immune therapy. They alter the immune system intentionally to help it better fight off certain illnesses. Before we had vaccination, we had something called inoculation. Vaccination is a type of inoculation, but uh, this was much less sophisticated than vaccines. Back when smallpox used to kill off and uh, disfigure millions of people across the world every year, uh, someone, perhaps in China, perhaps in, in South Asia, perhaps in Turkey, came up with the idea of inoculating people against the smallpox. And this is uh, probably originated in the 16th century. Uh, this practice involved taking some material from the pustules of a person afflicted with smallpox, usually with a needle, and then taking that needle and inserting it into the skin of somebody who was healthy. This would, hopefully, cause a very mild case of smallpox in that person, and then they would be immune to further cases of smallpox. Uh, this practice, despite many variations in its uh, application across the world, uh, appeared to be quite effective. In fact, when an ambassador's wife uh, brought this back to the court of England, the royal family ended up adopting the practice, not before they had a chance to test it on prisoners and orphans, of course. Anyway, not too long after that, in the 18th century, Edward Jenner in England uh, made an observation that milkmaids who had been infected with cowpox, a related disease, didn't seem to suffer the ravages of smallpox. Cowpox uh, went by the name of vaccinia, and Jenner got the idea to take these samples of vaccinia and inoculate people with them. This certainly seemed a safer practice than perhaps using smallpox itself and accidentally causing a further epidemic. Well, it turned out that this process, which became known as vaccination, worked quite well. And over the centuries, more and more vaccines were developed against serious illnesses. Now, most of this was developed based on observation. This was before there was a clear germ theory of disease, and certainly before anybody knew what the human immune system was. We now have the advantage of knowing quite a bit about immunology and about infectious disease, and we've become much better at designing and implementing vaccine programs. So let me give you an idea of how a basic vaccine works. First of all, I'll have to define one or two terms for you, and I'll define others as we go on. But uh, one of the important terms here is antigen. 
An antigen is any substance in the environment which can give rise to an immune reaction. This can include bits of bacteria or viruses or pollen or many other substances that we encounter every day. Your immune system encounters millions and millions of antigens on a daily basis, processes them, and decides whether or not there's something that should be fought. Now, let's look at a typical vaccine, say one against measles. Measles is a disease that infects only human beings and that has very serious complications, especially in young people. It can lead to blindness, pneumonia, brain damage, and death. The idea behind a vaccine is to create an immune reaction that would prevent an actual measles infection. The way we do this with this particular vaccine is we take a measles virus that's a living virus, living should be in quotes, and that's a story for another time, and attenuating the virus, that is, rendering it harmless to human beings. This is done in a number of ways, either by adding certain substances to it or by growing it out in culture again and again and again. But either way, the virus that results cannot cause a full-blown case of measles anymore. This live attenuated virus is then injected under the skin of a small person. The immune cells under that skin gobble up these live attenuated viruses, chop them up to pieces, and show them around to the rest of the immune system. The immune system does a couple of different things with this. First, it creates a whole bunch of antibodies that go around looking for more of the virus, and then it creates some memory cells which remember what this virus looks like and can be awakened later to produce more antibodies. Let's say you got your vaccine, you have those memory cells hanging out in a lymph node somewhere, and then you run into the measles. Uh, some kid who hasn't been vaccinated coughs on you. You absorb that measles virus, and those memory cells wake up and start cranking out antibody, which neutralizes the virus and either prevents illness or allows you to have a much milder case of the illness. I could, of course, go on about this all day because the immunology is fascinating, but you get the general idea. Once you understand a little bit about the biology of vaccines, some of the arguments of the people in the infectious disease promotion movement seem a little sillier. For instance, one of their favorite arguments uh, when they are claiming to be not truly anti-vaccine is that there are too many too soon. This is a favorite argument of David Kirby and Jenny McCarthy and others, uh, including Dr. Jay Gordon, a pediatrician who is against vaccines, which in my mind disqualifies him from being a pediatrician. But anyway, their argument goes that we're not truly anti-vaccine. We just think there's too many vaccines too soon. It's overwhelming the immune system of children. What this means exactly is unclear because it's scientifically impossible. The immune system is exposed, as I said earlier, to millions of antigens every day. But, they say, there used to be far fewer vaccines on the vaccine schedule. Now there's so many, there's many, many more vaccines. This has to be a bad thing. In fact, our vaccines have become much more targeted and contain fewer antigens than they used to. For instance, the hepatitis B vaccine doesn't contain hepatitis B virus, which your body would chop up into many different antigens. It contains only the surface antigen. 
This is the only antigen to which you need to be exposed in order to develop immunity. That's a pretty clever trick. So vaccines do not add appreciably to the immune challenge that a child or adult undergoes every single day as they go about their business. It does, however, make sure that some of those challenges to the immune system have a specific benefit, and that is to prevent disease. People who run the infectious disease promotion movement take advantage of some very common human traits. These include our fear for our children's health, our ability to recognize patterns that we see and to try to attribute cause to them, and our fears for what we see and what we know. Obviously, nothing scares a parent more than thinking about ill health for their children. What the people in the ID promotion movement manage to do is scare parents into thinking that the prevention of the disease is more dangerous than the disease itself, which is, of course, patently ridiculous. But how would a parent know this? Parents today have not seen what our parents saw. Our parents saw people sicken and die every year from infectious diseases. We don't see a lot of that anymore, thanks to vaccines. What parents do see, however, are other illnesses. Autism scares the hell out of people, perhaps to a greater degree than it should, considering its frequency, but still, it's a reasonable fear. And the fact that we don't know what causes autism makes it even scarier. If somebody with an MD next to their name tells a parent, hey, I know what causes it, and I know how to prevent it in your child, well, that parent may listen. If you tell a parent, hey, you know, kids get vaccines, and then shortly after they're diagnosed with autism, a parent is going to recognize that pattern. They're going to say, hey, I get it. That must be the cause. Of course, this is the fallacy of post hoc ergo propter hoc. Just because something occurred in a certain order does not imply causation. Still, once you put an idea into someone's head, it is very difficult to dislodge it. It would be very easy to demonize many of the parents who get caught up in this movement, but for obvious reasons, it's better if we can create allies. The leaders of this movement I have much less pity for, and uh, pretty much only scorn. But as long as we're talking about irrationality, I'd like to very ungently segue into uh, some more talk about mind-body dualism, something we've talked about in the past. We've talked about uh, Dr. Michael Egnor, the infamous creationist neurosurgeon who is a strong belief in mind-body dualism. This despite the fact that this man can change someone's mind with a scalpel in a very literal sense. But there are some other ways that this sort of dualist thinking affects the way we practice medicine. Uh, it's uh, something that I hadn't thought about that much before and that we haven't touched on that much. I've been thinking about this a lot, uh, particularly because of, well, my own clinical experiences, but also from reading a couple of blogs more regularly, both of which are hosted at science blogs. One is called Neurotopia, N-E-U-R-O-T-O-P-I-A, and the other called Drug Monkey, which is spelled exactly like you'd expect. In reading these blogs and in my conversations with their authors, I've done a lot of thinking about the biology of addiction. It's very easy to avoid compassion when dealing with patients who have addictions. 
people who are susceptible to addiction uh, can have some very grating behaviors, especially if they have prescription drug abuse problems. This is because they are looking for ways to control and manipulate you as a physician into giving them more of what they need. Also, when we see patients who are addicted to nicotine and who are clearly suffering the ill effects of its use, we sometimes get mad. We get frustrated that they continue to use these substances, and we wonder why they don't just stop. In a more dualist model, in which mind is clearly split from body, it becomes very easy to blame people. That isn't to say people aren't responsible for their behaviors. But when we think dualistically, it becomes very simple to think of people as having the willpower or not having the willpower to stop certain behaviors. If, on the other hand, we remember that mind is brain and brain is body, then we can view these behaviors for what they truly are, and that is a manifestation of biology. Once again, this doesn't relieve someone of the responsibilities for their own actions. If somebody gets drunk and drives into a school, they are still a criminal, and they've still done a bad act for which they should be punished. But we will become no closer to treating alcoholism if we don't remember that the addiction itself is a problem of the body and not of some nebulous mind or soul the more I've thought about this, the more I've remembered to have a little bit more compassion for, say, my smoking patients. I very rarely recommend to smokers to try to quit without some sort of pharmacologic assistance because most smokers will be unable to do this. The brains of smokers are hostage to nicotine. There is a severe withdrawal syndrome when you attempt to stop nicotine on your own. And therefore, I use medications like nicotine replacement therapy or Chantix in order to help them break their addiction. Our healthcare system approaches diseases of the mind very differently than diseases of the body, as if somehow there was a difference between mind and body. Our insurance does not cover mental illness very well despite its high morbidity and mortality and cost to society, and it doesn't handle addiction medicine very well, despite its high cost. Two of the most common addictions, tobacco and alcohol, are not treated in any comprehensive manner, despite the fact that it would save many, many lives and reduce the cost of health care tremendously. Psychiatric disorders, including addiction, are still diseases of the body. They just happen to be diseases of that mushy part of the body inside the skull. The interesting thing about that part of the body is it is accessible not only by pharmacologic agents, but also by interacting with other human beings. Seemingly irrational behavior is part of being a human being, and finding ways to approach this irrational behavior and to correct it, if you will, should be integrated into the rest of medicine. And this is where I'm going to pull it together for you folks. Irrational thinking that negatively affects health, whether it's the belief that the 
nicotine you're smoking isn't going to hurt you or whether it is a belief that vaccines are dangerous, this irrational behavior can be studied and can be approached in a rational manner. Some of the best psychologists in the world are people who do advertising for a living, and I'm sure they would be happy to share some of their expertise in devising ways to communicate to the public the benefit of the vaccines or the harm of alcohol and tobacco, and combine that with neuroscience research into addiction. And we may actually be able to make a dent in some of these public health problems if we as a society choose to. I'm slowly learning, very slowly, that blaming individuals for being addicts doesn't really get you anywhere in making them better. I'm also, somewhat more slowly, coming around to realizing that getting angry at people who hold irrational beliefs, such as those who have been bamboozled by the anti-vaccine people, doesn't always get you very far either. It's also sometimes unavoidable. We all must continue to call out the leaders of the anti-vaccine movement and continue to gently persuade our friends and relatives about the truth. Now, when you talk about gentle persuasion and you talk about addicts, this is a much more difficult sell. It's very difficult to sell families of addicts on compassion. It's also very difficult to help doctors want to care for addicts. But if we continue to approach these medical problems in a rational manner, if we continue to remember that mind is an epiphenomenon of brain, we might actually make some strides in fighting irrational behavior and the way it affects health. Now I'm going to call it quits for the day, and I'm going to admit to you right now, this probably wasn't my best pal cast. However, I'm a little rusty after several weeks off, so I'm going to promise you we're going to keep plugging away until we get it right. I hope you enjoyed listening, and I'll see you over on the blog.